Um, so today we're going to be continuing in our message. We're talking through that series in the book of Joshua, right? Where this is called a life lived for God. And then we were last week in our message, which was called Blameless Before God. Um, what we saw was in those verses between verses 17 through 20, we saw after the messengers had given their challenge, uh, they were actually responding to her request. She was asking for the true token. Look, will you, will you uphold your promise to protect my family? And we saw that they returned back with a promise that had conditions attached to it. We saw the conditionality of the oath. And what they were doing was they were qualifying the promise. They were saying, hey, look, as long as you'll do what we tell you to do, we're going to come through for you. Everything's going to work out just fine. But we saw the aspects of that conditionality. And what was interesting about it was the fact that we referenced and realized the fact that the same thing that we see with that promise, having conditions, is exactly the same pattern with God. God has promises that he gives, but there are aspects. If we do our part, God will do his part. There are conditions attached. And we saw this is true in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, the conditions that are there. And what we thought about was the conditionality of the greatest promise that God has ever given to mankind, that of salvation. The promise to redeem us from our lost condition. And what we saw was in Romans 10, 13, it says this, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That word, whosoever, that means anybody, right? That's anybody in the whole wide world. Whosoever shall call, he says, look, here's your condition. Call upon me. You call upon me. If you'll do that part, then guess what? The other part... I got you covered. It says here, and it says, and I call upon the name of the Lord, and it says, and you shall be saved. Shall be saved. There's a promise there. He's saying, look, this is a promise from me. You do your part. You trust in the finished work of the Lord, and guess what I'll do? I will, I will save you. And what we find here is the fact that, bottom line is, there is conditions in, uh, in attaining our salvation, but once we attain it, there are no conditions in regard to keeping it. And this is a false teaching. If you believe that to be a truth, that you've got to maintain your salvation somehow, you're off course. There's no biblical support for that stance whatsoever. Ephesians 2.8 is a verse where we can fall back on, and it kind of explains it to us a little bit. It says, for by grace, okay? The grace of God, God's love to us, is for by grace are you saved through faith, okay? We're saved through the faith that we have in the finished work of the cross, and that not of yourselves. That statement right there, man, that, says, that speaks volumes. Not of yourselves, not of the person that you are. Not of where you come from. Not your religiosity. It has nothing to do with you because guess what? God's not a respecter of persons. He sees us all the same way. Lost or saved, right? That's how God sees us. So as God sees us and He looks within us, He's saying, look, it's not you. It's my grace. You through faith receive it. And then it says, it is the gift of God. And we think of that. We hear that phrase and we go, yeah, okay. But many times we don't qualify what a gift is. A gift does not require any work, no payment. If I pay you for something, you're not giving me a gift, right? right. Oh, I got this pair of shoes for you. They're a gift, 100 bucks. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's a, that's a strange gift. Seems like there's some conditions attached to it there. What happens is you're a gift, something that's free. If you offer me a gift, that means you paid for it, and you're offering it to me with no strings attached. All I have to do is make a choice to receive it, right? That's what the Bible says, the gift of God. The gift of life, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the gift. So God says, look, once I give you the gift, it's yours, and I'm never, ever going to take it back. God promises that. Promises of that. And that's the whole aspect of that. Our only responsibility is to receive. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That word is a promise. God's saying, you know what? It's written in stone. I have saved your soul. You are one of mine. We can't lose our salvation. But what we do have is accountability to God. And what we looked at is the fact is they not only had conditionality in their oath, they had accountability. And accountability that we looked at is the fact that, bottom line is you and I all stand accountable to God. But at the same time, what's incredible about the Lord is the fact that God makes himself accountable for us. How remarkable is that? The fact that God looks at the lost condition of humanity. He looks at our broken lives and all the mess that we've made of, us, of ourselves and he says, you know what? I'm going to be accountable for them. Remarkably, Jesus came to earth to pay the price that we could not afford to pay. And it was driven by love. He redeemed us from sin because he made himself accountable for us. But at the same time, as God's done that, there's also an accountability aspect for us as well. Not to maintain our salvation, but to live a life that brings him 
glory. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So as Christians, this judgment seat, this is for us. The great white throne is for those that are lost. This judgment seat is for the Christian. You and I will stand before the Lord, and God's going to say, let's look at how you did with the life that I gave you. Did you bring honor and glory to me, or did you spend your time focused upon yourself? So we're accountable to our Savior and the fact that realize that what he did was driven by love, right? It was love, love, love. That's what brought God. That's what he did, all that he did. And it should be the same thing. We should recognize the fact that we should give him back love. We should honor Him. We should live a life that brings Him glory because of thanks. And that the idea, the fact that we don't so many times is mind-boggling. We think of all that God has done, the love He has for us. And we understand the fact that in 1 Peter 1.15 it says this, But as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. He said your life, your life should be holy just as a thank you just as a thank you for what it is that God has done. So we looked at the messengers. We looked at their story and what, or what their, 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 their oath, and it had conditionality and it had accountability. And what we see here in this next portion of the Scripture is what's happening is Rahab's responding. She heard it. Here's the conditions. Here's your accountability. This is what needs to take place. And what does she do? She responds. And notice this. She's going to come forward and she's going to, by faith, she's going to respond and she's going to give them her answer. And these are going to be the final words that she'll say to them before they disappear in our message this morning, which is titled, So Be It. So Be It. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for today. God, I thank you for the opportunity to come to your word, Lord, to hear uh, what you have for us. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible truths uh, that are revealed through Scripture. Thank you for the Spirit of God that dwells within us and helps us to discern. Lord, you know I've prayed over this message. I have prayed over this Scripture. Lord, I have studied and I have put in the work that you asked me to do. Lord, I'm asking you now, Father, that you might uh, help it to come uh, Lord, come forward as what you want us to hear. Help us, Lord, not to hear from me or have anything that I want to bring, but Lord, help me to disappear. Uh, God, that uh, we might hear, thus saith the Lord, speak to my heart if no one else, Lord, that we might receive from you uh, what we need to be better, to be more an image of Christ. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 2, verses 21 through 24. And we'll finish chapter 2 today. Yay! All right. And she said, according unto your words... So be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window, and they went and came into the mountain and abode there three days until the pursuers were returned. And the pursuers sought them throughout all the way, but found them not. So the two men returned and descended from the mountain and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told, and, and told him all things that befell them. And they said unto Joshua, Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. So in this passage of Scripture, we're going to see really three characters, really two main ones that we're going to focus on. But we see Rahab, first of all. Rahab is a picture. We've talked about this. Here she is. We've got Rahab, we've got the messengers, and then we've got the pursuers. And we saw as we established a biblical picture of what Rahab represents, what each one represents, Rahab is a picture of the lost soul that is seeking God. That's the picture that we see within her. Then we see the messengers, the two men. And what we see here is they are a picture of the saving power of God, the power of the Lord. We could almost say that they're a picture of God's, of God's word, of God's truth. And then we see the pursuers. The pursuers come from Jericho. We know Jericho is a picture of the world. So these are pursuers. These are adversaries of God's people that are hunting them. We're going to spend our time focused on Rahab and on the messengers. In verse 21, what we find here is that conditionality and accountability as she responds to the oath. In verse 21, she said, And she said, According unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. So what we see first of all with Rahab is her commitment. We see her commitment. Now her commitment is in two parts, okay? First we're going to see her commitment as a verbal commitment. She says, first of all, And she said, According to your words, so be it. What we saw with Rahab last week was she's not giving any additional information. They bring no proof. They've got no battle plans. They've got no pictures of the army. Hey, man, check this out. This is what's happening. This is what's coming. No, it's all based upon what they tell her, their words. So there's no specifics here. All they know is, you know what, you're supposed to do what you're told. And what she does in response to simply hearing this is she, she accepts all the conditions. She, she hears the whole thing, and she says, okay. Based on what you guys say, so be it. I'm in. Incredible example of faith in the fact that all she has is their word and their word alone. That's all she's got. 
That's all she has. And we think about the fact that these two messengers are unlike people that she's ever met before. Because what's unique about them is they have a, a sense of confidence. They have a sense of confidence in a situation that does not make sense. They are two men against an entire city. They are actively being hunted. But they're speaking words that contradict the reality of what she sees. And is that not a picture of the word of God for many of us? Have there not been times when we have seen the world and what's going on around us and we hear the word of God and it seems to contradict what I see? Mm -hmm. That I'm supposed to be at peace in a time when it doesn't look like I should be at peace. And I'm just telling you, I have had people come in here that have been broken. They've got the most horrific stories of pain of suffering, of brokenness, where life has literally dismantled them based upon their circumstances and broken them in a million pieces. And they come in here and they lay out their story. And it's like, it's hopeless, man. It just sounds so broken. But then to have the, be able to open the Word of God and to turn that book around and slide it across them on my desk and say, can I just show you what God says? Yeah. And to watch the Word of God minister to their heart. Amen. And see God's hand lovingly reach through the words of the page and simply start to restore them and give them hope when they should be hopeless based upon what circumstances say. And what it is so amazing is the fact that she's hearing words that are contrary to her reality. And guess what? The words that we can find in the Word of God, they give us strength when we would not have any strength otherwise. It is an amazing thing that God has done. And He's given us this incredible truth. But we have to accept it. We have to receive it. Because the problem is the reason the world doesn't receive it is because, guess what? They're natural. They don't have the Spirit of God. They cannot understand the Word of God. The Bible says the natural man cannot receive it because it is of spirit. Right? They don't have that ability. But as a child of God, we can hear the truth, man. It can speak to our hearts. We can receive it. And the thing is, just like Rahab receives it, and it will be a picture, we're going to see her restoration. We're going to see her redemption through it. The very same thing can happen when someone comes in here broken. If they have a willingness to hear the truth. And we can take them here and watch God minister to their heart. He can redeem them. And He can restore them. And the coolest thing in the world, the greatest thing to get to witness, is to know some people that are sitting even in this room that were broken. And not only did God rebuild them and then restore them and then strengthen them, is that he starts to then take that person and use them as an instrument mm, in the world, Thank right? You, and what used to be the most awful part of that person's life then becomes a tool for ministry that they can help somebody else. And suddenly what happens is our perspective changes and we go from seeing something awful and only recognizing it as bad and going, you know what I see? I see God giving me a gift. Because I've always asked him to use me. And you know what? Never happened. But when I went through that trial, oh my goodness, God gave me something now where I can work, something I can do for him. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But the first part of her commitment, it's just verbal. But then what happens? She's going she's gonna to take action. Here's the second part. Let her be. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. So she made her verbal commitment. Now it's going to go further. And the first thing that she does, interestingly enough, is she sends them away. And she sent them away, and they departed. Now this is a big thing. Because, recognize, this is security, okay? <laughs> it's rehab against Jericho. I mean, bottom line is she doesn't have a whole lot of support. She has her family, but they don't necessarily know what's going on. She's got these two men. And what happens is their words of assurance, their words of confidence, man, that gives her confidence. It makes her feel strong in the moment. They're kind of like a security blanket, so to speak. And we think about this, you know, like if, you, if you ever, you ever, who's ever been in, who's ever been like in some place like in the woods all by yourself at night? Has anyone ever been there? No. Some place just, <laughs> all the women are like, nope, I never had any reason to ever do that. Why would I do that? That's an idiotic thing to do. <laughs> all the guys are like, well, why wouldn't you be in the woods at night by yourself? <laughs> Or wherever it is, in the house by yourself, whatever it is. There's something when you're alone and it's someplace dark, it doesn't give you a lot of confidence. You're not like, man, I'm ready to just take on whatever, right? You're not joking. <laughs> but if you put your friend there with you, next thing you know, you're laughing and joking. It's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a comfort 
just to the physical connection. Not that your friend who's 10 years old with you is going to be able to protect you, but for whatever reason, there's a sense of security just because you're not alone. And what's so interesting about this, the fact that she sends them on their way. The security that she has by their physical presence, she breaks that bond and she sends them away in a great act of faith. And as they depart and slip off into the night, because remember, it's nighttime. She's got the, the scarlet line. She's lowered it down. She's been talking to them. She says, so be it. And they, they head off. So now, here she goes. She's all alone. And it says here, the next thing she does, it says her commitment takes another step. It says, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. Okay, now last week we discussed what that scarlet line, what is it doing? What's it pointing to? It marks her home with that color, that scarlet red, as a place that will be protected. It will be delivered from destruction. And we saw that it was just like the Passover and the scarlet blood of the lamb that would mark that home that destruction would not come and deliverance would be there. So we see this. The fact that this line, this mark, this, this marker, this line is going to mark her home and make it unique to any other home in Jericho. Remember what Jericho is a picture of? A picture of the world. A picture of sin. So the marker that she puts in her window sets that, that place apart. It sets her apart. And as those of us who have received Christ as our Savior, our Passover lamb, that blood is applied to our life. Which means that we should be unique. We should stand out. When the world sees us, we should not look like the world. Amen. We are to be unique. We're to be different. Yep. And what's interesting about the fact that when she takes this action of sending them away, and then she does this, the timing of it's very interesting. Because consider this. She doesn't make the physical commitment until the messengers are out of sight. Okay? So she's not doing it for them. Right? This isn't an act of faith that she's doing because she's saying, you know what? I want them to see that I'm doing this. Hey, fellas, look at me. Do you see this? So she's not doing it because she's trying to make a show of it. She's not doing it for appearances' sakes. She's doing it because she truly believes. Guess what? If I put the line in the window, salvation's going to come. I trust and believe what these men have told me. And what we find is the fact that she's doing it when she's alone. And see, this is big because there are a lot of people that when they're in church... And they're around the family. Man, oh, I trust the Lord. Oh, God. Faith, boy, I got faith. I take whatever it is. Give it all to God. Yes, sir. Well, let them be alone. Let them be alone when it's not somebody listen to their profession of strength and faith. And you hear stories. People call you in the middle of the night because their life is derailing and they're spiraling into a hole and they desperately need to talk to you because guess what? The world has come to an end. The very same person that has all the faith in the world when they're standing around other folks. You've got to realize it's not who we are. It's not who we pretend to be. It's not who we appear to be that matters when it comes to faith. Right. It's who we really are. Because I can promise you your faith will be tested Amen. Not when you're around everybody else. Not when we're in church together. Not when we're praising the Lord and the, and the praise team is singing. And we're like, yeah, you're not going to get challenged then. But find yourself at a place in your life where you find yourself broken down. And you feel like things are falling apart. You will be tested in that moment. And see, Rahab is this choice. What does she do? She decides to do it when she's by herself. She receives the truth as what it is. She, by faith, does what she does. And what is she doing in the middle of the night? She's marking her home. She's marking her home. She's saying, you know what? You can look at this house and God will know. The people of God are going to see this house and they're going to go, you know what? There's a house of faith. And see, you and I should have, that should be the testimony of our life. Our neighbors should look at our house and say, you know what? That's a house of faith. Amen. I can see it. Yes. The testimony that you live in your neighborhood, that you have at your work, it should be a testimony that says, you know what? A person of faith, a family of faith. When it stands out, they don't look like the crowd. When God's people are around each other, it's amazing. When we go all the way to Africa, you go all the way to Africa, you fly for 36 hours, you ride in the bus, you drive, you're on a truck, you're riding down dirt roads, you end up in the middle of nowhere. A hut that has no water, no nothing, there's nothing anywhere. And you meet somebody who does not speak your language who is a child of God. Amen. And guess what? Instantly. <laughs> Instantly. You're hugging. You're sharing. You're talking. You're spending time. To a translator, obviously. 
that language is very hard to understand. <laughs> to give you an idea, the word saved has 13 letters wow. in that language, in Chichewa. But that's a side note. But what's amazing is there's a connection there. There's something that makes you stand out. And that's the key. Our life, our homes should stand out. Our homes should not look like the world. Titus 2.14 says this, Who gave himself for us, the Lord, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Right? That's what he did. When Jesus died on the cross, when he paid the price for the sins of the world, when we asked to ask him to save us and he receives us, what does he do? He redeems us from all iniquity. Boom, it's gone. But then what happens? And purify unto himself. Purify. That's holiness. Purifying unto himself a peculiar people. They don't look like everybody else. They don't act like everybody else. Their home is different. Their communication is different. The way their children are, everything is different. There's an aspect of their life that's different than the world because there's this aspect of holiness, this purification that works through it. And it says, like, zealous of good works. Zealous means excited, motivated, ready. Not thinking about excuses or why they can't. Looking at ways they can. Right? Different way of thinking. That's what he's done. He says, from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people who are zealous of good works. And our testimony in our neighborhood should leave no doubt of who it is we are a follower of. What we find with Rahab is that after, through her verbal commitment and now her, her, her actions, what she's done, man, that's all summed up in this. So be it. So be it. She may as well be saying, man, let's do this. Right? Let's do this. Like those action movies. Let's do this. Right? So Rahab has made her commitment. And then we look at the messengers. With the messengers, what we see with them is we see God's preparation. God's preparation of the messengers in verse 22. And they went and came into the mountain and abode there three days until the pursuers were returned. And the pursuers sought them throughout all the way, but found them not. Okay? So we see these two messengers, right? And we saw this like uh, two weeks ago. We saw the picture. I showed you a picture of the Mount of Temptation, which is the mountain that's right above where Jericho sits. So we know that Jericho is literally, uh, uh, they're overlooking, overlooking the city. So this would give the, the spies who are hiding in the mountains, this would give them a bird's eye view of the city. They're going to see all that's going on down below them. Remember, they're here for three days. Now, for three days, they're hiding for their lives, but at the same time, they're watching what's taking place down in front of them. Remember what I told you about three days? Three days is a time of preparation. And it's a time of transition. So during this three days, yes, the city is preparing. Yes, the people are frantic. Yes, the people are scared. Yes, the battlements are going up. Everything's taking place, and they're watching all this frantic activity down below. But at the same time, guess what God's doing? God's preparing these men. He's preparing them during this three-day window as well. We remember the fact that they are a picture of the saving power of God, a picture of the Word of God, God's work. But at the same time, historically, they're just two dudes. They're a couple of guys that are in the middle of a foreign land being hunted by people that seek to kill them. So they're hiding for their lives on a mountain, looking down on a massive city that is rallying thousands and thousands of troops and all this stuff is taking place. So here they are watching this. This is a time that is going to test them. We understand the fact that these pursuers that are from Jericho, they are a picture an adversary that is hunting them. Well, guess what? As children of God, we have pursuers, adversaries that are hunting us every single day. Every single day. Consider this, 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10. You know this verse, but why don't you listen to it with new eyes? Or new, listen to it with new eyes. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, there you go. Uh, be sober, right? Be sober, wide awake, clear-minded. Be vigilant, don't stop, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking, mm -hmm. seeking whom he may devour. What are the pursuers doing? They're looking everywhere to find them. They're searching for any place they possibly can. They're looking for vulnerability. They're looking for weakness. Verse 22 says this, and the pursuers sought them throughout all the way. They searched everywhere. And can I just promise you right now, the devil is going to search every part of your life, 
every part of your family, every part of your church, every part of your marriage, looking for a weakness where he can strike. He is sober and he is vigilant. That's why Peter warns us that we must be the exact same way. Because if we take a day off and think we're just going to coast, guess what? He will strike because he is walking back and forth. He is seeking whom he may devour, destroy. He cannot take our salvation, but man, he can make a ruin of our Christian life. You get confident in yourself. You think you've got everything under control. Why do you think pastors fall? Because what happens to them is they reach a point in time where they go, you know what? I'm above this. I'm above this. I don't need to be sober and vigilant anymore. Do you see that all that God's doing in this church? Do you see all the blessings? Do you see all this? God's got a special watch for me. No. 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 And what they do is they drop their guard. And the things they used to do to be sober and vigilant, they no longer do. And subtly enough, Satan works his way in. And the next thing you know, their ministry's destroyed. God gets a black eye. Thousands of people are hurt. Because... They were not sober, and they were not vigilant, because they forgot they were being pursued. And I can just promise you, we're all being pursued. Why do we lock our homes at night? Why don't we just leave our doors open when our family goes to sleep? Because we're like, whoa, there's crazy people in the world. Of course I'm going to lock the door. I'm going to physically protect my family so that nothing happens to them. Of course I'm going to do that. But what about spiritually? Do you not realize spiritual destruction is much more, is much more horrific than physical? It's got way more damning and destructive power. Yet, we're all about the physical protection. We're sober and vigilant to watch out for our kids if they're at the park. We watch out for them physically. But then they can get on the internet and look at God knows what and soak up all the garbage, the filth of this world that is designed to destroy, to draw them away from God, to distort their understanding of who they are as a human being. It's active in our culture today. And what's happening is we're this all-out assault because guess what? Our pursuers are hunting us. They are looking for weaknesses and a way to get us. That's why you've got to be sober and be vigilant. That warning is so clear. We're looking for any place, any weakness, and we're addressing it. We're looking in our own lives. We check who we are. We check ourselves every single day. Verse 9, it continues in 1 Peter. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. Resist steadfast. We resist Satan. We resist his influence. By faith we do this, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Everybody else, all Christians, everybody's facing the same issue. The same pursuers are hunting them as well. So what do we do? We stay steadfast in the faith. We remain sober and vigilant because our adversary is looking for that weakness. We're cognizant of it. We understand the fact that he's there. And as these messengers were faithful to exactly what God told them to do. They would go where they were told to go. They said, go to the mountains. They went to the mountains. They did everything God guided them to do. They told three days, which is what Joshua told them, and Rahab said the same thing. They stayed for three days, and because of that, it says in verse 22, but found them not. So they were delivered. But we think about it, and we go, well, why did they have to hide for three days anyway? And why did they have to hide on the mountain in fear for their lives and why do they have to experience the fear for three days of watching that city get stronger and stronger and stronger? Why do they have to go through that? Why do they have to worry about and look over their shoulders and not be able to sleep and, and be so freaked out? Why, why would God allow that? Why does God allow that in our lives? Why does adversity come? Why do we have to deal with that? Could not God have just simply protected them somehow? Could he have made them invisible? Poof, sure. Could he just zap them from there to there? Yes, of course he could. So we go, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would God allow them to go through that? Why does he allow the pursuers to hunt them? It doesn't make sense. 1 Peter continues, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, okay, so that's who he's called us to be, after that ye have suffered a while. What? After that ye have suffered a while. So God's called us by his grace. He's called us into eternal glory. He saved us. And he says, hey, I'm going to let you suffer a while. We're like, whoa, that's not cool. I mean, suffering, not so hip on the suffering part. I like to avoid the suffering if that's at all cost. Anything I can possibly do to avoid that. So he says, suffer a while. That's right. This is being prepared through trials. But what happens, right? After having suffered a while, it says here, make you perfect. 
Perfect means spiritually mature. Establish. Establish us. Strengthen. It's talking about our faith. Strengthen our faith. And the last part he says is, settle you. Settle you. I give you peace in the midst of a storm that should scare you senseless. And yet you can smile. In the midst of a horrible loss, you can smile and say, you know what? God is good. He knows what I'm going through. So God could miraculously protect them. Yes, he could put a bubble around them or they could walk and have nothing ever happen to them. But no, God allows them to face the fear of hiding for their lives, watching the city become stronger and stronger and stronger. Reason being, our faith does not become strengthened until it gets tested. Mm -hmm. When you go to the gym, you don't go to the gym and put no resistance on the bar. You go to the gym and you put weights on the bar. Why? Because the greater the resistance, the greater the strength is gained. If you never put anything on it, but you go every day and you're faithful. I mean, you go to the gym every day, six days, seven days a week. And you go for two hours at a time. But you never load the bar. How's the workout? Man, awesome. Killed it for two hours. Right on. Yeah. yeah you look good. Uh, you look good. Uh, you, uh, you look the same as you did last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How much weight are you doing? Wait. Huh? The greater the weight, the greater the result. The same thing is true in faith. God mirrors spiritual with physical. That's the way it works. So we want to be these great spiritual people, people of faith. And God says, well, then guess what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to test you a little bit. James, just first, James 1, verses 2 through 4 says this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Eesh. So when you find yourself in a place of trial, count it all joy. All right? Not a perspective we traditionally have. Verse 3, knowing this, okay, listen. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Patience. It's a virtue. Patience is something that we need to be known for. Patience is a development of understanding that God can be trusted. Notice this, verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. What did 1 Peter just tell us in verse 10? He said this, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Right? Notice what it ends with, wanting nothing. Settle you, wanting nothing. I am content. I don't need anything. I can trust the Lord. And so what happens is instead of cursing our trials, instead of being so frustrated by the tribulation that we face, what if instead we were to embrace it? What if we saw it and recognized for what it was? And we trusted the intentions of the Lord that God's always working on our behalf. God's always trying to make us better. But understand, if I know that the trial's not real, and if it's something that's just simply a shadow or just my own imagination, it's not going to change my faith. It's when I feel overwhelmed. You don't learn how to swim until you're over your head. As long as you can stand, you will not swim. So is God going to take you out to 50-foot water sometimes and just go, boom? Yep. And when Peter went under the water, what did he say? Lord, save me. And the next word is immediately. Immediately. By faith, Peter called out. By faith, we must walk with God. Because you know what? There will be days when it's going to be way over your head. And you're going to go, you know what? I cannot do this. And God says, that's the point. That's the point. You need me. You need me. Speaking of faith, these messengers. Number three. Let's look at their triumph. Verse 23. So the two men returned and descended from the mountain and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all things that befell them. Now, there's a little detail here that just jumped off to me on the play page. Probably may not mean a whole lot to you guys, but I thought it was cool, so we're just going to take a minute and look at it. First is that word descend. Descend. Now, if you do a word search and you go through the Bible and you looked at the word descend, what you'll find is that in spiritual connotation, it's used every once in a while, it's used talking about terrain, like a river descending or something like that. But other than that, it's always talking about the movement of God. I'm going to take, I, I pulled just a couple out of dozens of examples just to sort of show you. Genesis 28, 12 says this, and I just took snippets out of the verse. It says, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Exodus 19, 18, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Exodus 33, 9, the cloudy pillar descended. Exodus 34, 5, and the Lord descended into the cloud. 
Matthew 3.16, the Spirit of God descended like a dove. Matthew 28.2, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and saw, in Acts 10.11, and saw heaven open and a certain vessel descending unto him. Revelations 21.10, and he carried, carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So we see here first, descending. As a, as a connotation of the movement of God. Then we look at the fact that it's the mountain. It's not the mountains. Look through Scripture. Go look at the mountain. We just saw in Revelation 21.10, it's talking about that high mountain, this, this heavenly high mountain. Ezekiel 28, on Wednesday night when we were doing our study, what did we see? We saw that the devil, Satan, was cast out of the mountain of God. Look at this in Psalm 48.1. Great is the Lord and great greatly to be praised in the city of our God and the mountain of His holiness. So we find is mountains show up plenty of times, but the mountain, singular, invariably is pointing to the dwelling place of God. So in the midst of this little phrase, this little, this little portion of first Scripture, descending, picture of the movement of God from the mountain, a picture of God coming. Do you see there's a prophetic picture even in the specific words that God chooses. And what's so interesting about this is bottom line is this picture of this descending and this, this picture of God, of God moving is a prophet, there's a prophetic meaning. Okay? And then the next word that's in this very next part and it says, and passed over. And passed over. It doesn't say they crossed the river. It doesn't say they passed over the river. It just says they passed over. Now, isn't it interesting that we already saw the connection, the incredible connection between the scarlet thread and the proverb or and, and, the, and the exodus of the Israelites and the aspect of what it was called? It was called the, the Passover. So obviously God is pointing us to this same thing and he keeps referencing it even in this scripture here. But as a little side note, as a little teaching note, if you go look up those two phrases, that little part right there, and it says, and, the, and, it says, and they descended unto the mountain and passed over. You go to any other Bible besides an authorized King James Bible, and guess what? That prophetic meaning will not be there. You might find one, but you won't find both. I can promise you that. So God is always working, and if those specific words had not been used, and they were not protected throughout time, guess what? That little thing, that little prophetic marker would be gone. But understand, remember, our pursuer is always looking for a place of weakness. Even if it's changing just a couple of words. Because what happens then when you change just a couple of words? Isaiah 44, 18. This is the desire that Satan has. They have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. This is speaking of the lost world. Why can people not see the truth of the Word of God? Because guess what? The devil has hid the truth from them. They cannot see it. They're his. But guess what? As children of God, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. What does the Holy Spirit do? It helps us discern the Word of God. So now, as the Holy Spirit, I have the ability to see. We have the ability to understand. If you have the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But if I'm trusting in a version that does not have all the exact words that God put in it for the English language, then guess what? I'm going to miss it. And so that's the thing. And I know it's a soapbox for me, and I'm going to get off of it now. But bottom line is, I'm just telling you, there's an importance to this, even down to specific words. Remember, God said that His words were pure. His words were pure. And He would protect those words. Remember John 8, 32, Jesus said this, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Amen. But back over to the to messengers. They passed over the river. Now, we're going to pick up in verse 23. And came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all things that befell them. And they said unto Joshua, Truly the Lord hath delivered into our hands all the land, for even all the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. So not only these messengers delivered a, a message of hope to Rahab, praise the Lord. But guess what they're doing? They're bringing back and delivering a message of hope to their own people. It's gone both ways. So they've gone into and they've come out of. And they've shared this good news of encouragement. What they're doing is they're telling the people, guess what? God's promise was true. The deliverance that He said He was going to do, I was going to prepare the holy. Guess what? It's getting ready to happen. And what's so crazy is the fact that I think about this. What did Joshua and Caleb, 40 years earlier, 12 men were sent in to do the spying. 10 of them came back and said, we can't do it. And two men, two messengers, two messengers returned. And they said, you know what? 
We can do this. Remember, this is Joshua. This is them. This is 40 years earlier. Numbers 14, verses 6 through 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey, abundance. Our rebel, he says, Only rebel not ye against the Lord. Neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Amen. This is, a, this is the same message that, that he's hearing. So you can imagine it's kind of like a little deja vu moment for him. He's going, man, this sounds like what, exactly what we said. This is the way we said He said, Nelly, now he's receiving and he's hearing and he's going, okay. Because guess what? All those naysayers that got scared, that didn't want to go, they're all dead. This is their children. This is the next generation. And this generation is going to walk out of the wilderness and possess the promised land. Amen. They're going to possess it. And what we see here is the fact that, bottom line, is that's supposed to be you and I. In this Christian walk, God delivers us out of, out of Egypt, our spiritual Egypt. He brings us out of our bondage to sin. Amen. He sets us free. We end up finding ourselves in the wilderness. And now here's the wilderness. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through the wilderness. We're going to reach the promised land, the abundant life with Christ. So that's the desire that God has for us. That's what he's been pointing us to again and again and again. Be holy as I am holy. Walk with me. Serve me. Bring glory to my name through your life that you live. But you see what happens is people get discouraged because the pursuer, what's he trying to do? He's trying to stop us. He's trying to keep us out of giving God glory. He wants to keep us in the wilderness. He wants to keep us fearful. He wants to keep us distracted. He wants to keep us discouraged. Remember, that's why he came. John 10.10, 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy. We know that's his tactic. We know why he's come. He wants destruction. Let's see that next part. This is God prophetically. He's talking about the promised land that exists for you and I as Christians. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Amen. That they would experience a fellowship with me. That they would bring glory to my name. That the thing that most Christians will never find, which is an intimacy, and a knowledge of who I really am. And instead of feeling all the guilt of the sin that they're stuck in, they let go of it. And they embrace truth. And they embrace my love. And they experience my care for them like they've never experienced before. With no guilt in between us, just trust, just faith, just beauty and love. That's what God intends for us. So God's trying to draw us to the promised land, that abundant life that he created us for. And Rahab, man, she's committed to it. She's committed to honoring the Lord. She's going to be rewarded for it handsomely. And the messengers, what were they do? They were faithful, faithful to deliver the message. They took it to her, which is who they were sent to go see. But they're also being faithful to bring it back. They're encouraging their brothers and sisters. They're encouraging those people that are getting ready to go into hostile territory. Remember, this is not going to be a cakewalk. They're going in, and there's going to be a battle. There's going to be bloodshed. Because guess what they're doing? They're going to take back land that at one time they had, but they lost. Because remember, that's the land of Abraham. Their forefathers, they had the promised land, but they lost it. The pagans took it over, and now they're going back to take it back. Understand, man, an encouraging word for people that are getting ready to face adversity can do a lot a reminder of God's faithfulness, a reminder of God's promises. It can empower an army, man. It can strengthen them. And as we consider the landscape of Christianity today, and we consider how much territory has been lost, where our country was, and where it is today. Yes, amen. Where do we fall? Where do we fall? Are we the ones that are carrying the message? to the lost and the saved, encouraging them, encouraging them to be faithful. Are we faithfully proclaiming the good news of God and the fact that His, His uh, through the conversation of our life, through the way we live, through the holiness that we walk with God, are we proclaiming who God is and the goodness that He's given us? Is that what we're telling the lost world? Is that what we're telling the saved world? Because we got brothers and sisters that are discouraged right now. 
We have some that are out of the fight that have given up. And sometimes they need an encouraging word from a brother or sister who says, you know what? Can I just tell you? God's promises are true. Can I just tell you that God's faithful? Can I just tell you He sees you where you are? Can I just say He's ready and willing to use you if you'll just, just let Him? Yeah. Don't listen to the distractions. Don't listen to the enemy. Because you know what? Those people that are discouraged, sometimes that's us. Yeah. We're supposed to be preparing to go to battle. And we're ready to chuck it all. Because we allowed the world, we allowed what we saw, we allowed what our spouse did to us or our children did to us or whatever has gone on, or our job or our work or whatever it is. We allow the things that are around us to impact us. And instead of being encouraged because I know I'm walking with God and this trial is for my life and God's trying to build me through it, I let that thing overwhelm me. And you know what I do? I go, you know what? God must have forgot. He must have forgot me. Guess I'm on my own. And you know what? I'm discouraged. But you know what? God's faithful. And He always keeps His promises. So instead of allowing what we see to impact us, we walk by faith and not by sight. We're all guilty of it, but we do not fall prey to that. Because remember, the enemy, what's he doing? Just trying to knock us off course because he knows where we're being pointed. Our Joshua, our Jesus is calling us. Amen. Come to the promised land. You see, this is where I'm at. Come be with me. Come love me. Come receive what I've got for you. Yes. And we've got our eyes on him, and he's going, oh, I've got to create any kind of distraction I can. Whatever I can do to divert them. Whatever pothole I can put in front of them. Whatever injury I can play upon them. I'm going to do whatever I can to get their eyes off of that Jesus because he's the problem. Because realize he hates him. And because of that, he hates us. And I can just promise you, man, you and I are called to take back territory Amen. from our culture, in our lives. Man, the devil's taking too much in our families, in our marriages. Amen. Recognize the fact that he hates us. Will we earnestly pray for God to bring change and then on top of that pray that he'll use us to bring the change. It's easy to pray for somebody else to come into your family's life. It's easy to, to, to pray for a stranger to reach your mom. It's easy for, to reach a, to a stranger to reach your dad, whoever it is. It's easy to pray that way. But what if the prayer was, God, use me. Change my heart. Show me, Lord, what I need to do in my life so that I can be that instrument that can help change in their life. God, use me to love them. Use me to show them. Give me patience that I do not normally have. God, take me through the trial of life and make me stronger so I can be an instrument for your glory. That's what God's intention is, that we would go through the trials and instead of cursing them, we would embrace them. As Paul in Ephesians 6.19, what did he do? He said, pray that I might have the boldness, the boldness to stand for God. So as God rallies us to fight and he calls us to the front lines of the battle, will we be worthy? Will we be ready? Or will we bow out because of sin? Because of fear. Maybe because we just don't care. There are a lot of Christians that that seems to be what they're saying. They just don't care. The devil has taken too much ground. It's time we take it back. My prayer for us is that when he calls us to the spiritual battle, that we not think of excuses of why we can't. But instead, we step up and we say, like Rahab does, according unto your words, Lord, so be it. So be it. I'm proud of you guys for being faithful to the word. I'm proud of you guys for being in church today. I'm proud of you. We're being called to a work. We're supposed to reach the lost. We're supposed to challenge those that don't know Christ. We're supposed to do it in love. We're supposed to care for them. We're supposed to challenge our brothers and sisters. Set an example. Show our children what it means to be a Christian. Show our neighbors what it means to be a Christian. Not by title, but by life. That the conversation of our life would impact them. Because we're true. We're sincere. We're real. We don't do it for show. We don't do it because somebody, somebody can judge us and say, well, you know, they look like a Christian. No, we do it because we love the Lord. 
And if we love the Lord and we do it for Him, guess what? God will honor it. And as we go to face those forces, man, praise God. We can do it not in confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Him. See, God's, the victory's His. What did David say when he's facing Goliath? The battle is the Lord's. And standing, standing back like the rest of the Israelites, shaking in our boots. We need to be the Davids that take five little stones in a bag and run to meet the giant. And if we have to suffer and go through trials for Christ's sake, so be it. I love you guys. Just want us to be faithful. Amen. Just want us to make a difference. Because there are people outside of these doors, people that live in our neighborhoods, people that we see at work, and they're on their way to hell because they don't know any different. Where there's Christians that have been discouraged, and guess what they need? They need an example set before them. Someone that steps up to the line and says, you know what, I'm going to battle. And they may be hanging back, shaking in their boots, but they see you. Because you know what David did when he stepped to the line? He gave courage to an army. He was just one little boy. God's calling us to be brave. Yes. And do what the rest of the world is not doing. Because if we will commit, God will use us. Let's pray. Praise the Lord. Lord, thank you so much for today, God, for... uh, Given us some incredible truths as we see in the messengers we see in Rahab's life. And God, thank you for the pictures. Thank you for the incredible richness of the word and the way that it works to teach us such amazing things. And God, as the trials of this life do come, and Lord, we all know that we are being hunted. We are facing an adversary. God, help us. Help us, Lord, to put our faith in you, not in what we see. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for those who have joined us online. Lord, I pray that you will, God, uh, please help us, Lord, not only to be encouraged but help us to be an encourager. Help us, God, to have our hearts and minds focused upon honoring you in our word, in the, in the word of God, in our, in our prayer time, God, in the life that we live, the, the choices we make, not just verbal, but we take action. God, thank you for the fact that you're with us no matter what we, where we go, no matter what we face. I pray that, God, you'll direct our steps and help us, Lord, to surrender to your will.